Well, one thing that you may not know about me is that I love cotton candy. Okay, I know this is the kind of thing you're supposed to grow out of, but I never really did. Uh, cotton candy, like for me, through my entire life, it's always been one of those things that just kind of like fills me with pure delight. I don't know whether it's like the 100% sugar content, I think that has something to do with it, or the fluffy texture, or the way it just like melts in your mouth. Cotton candy has always just felt magical to me. And another thing that you might not know about me is that I used to work at a museum in Teeterville. Now, if you're not a Norfolk County local, uh, yes, Teeterville is a real place. It's about 15 minutes that way. And yes, there's a museum there, believe it or not. And part of my job at this museum involved planning events for the community. Believe it or not, there wasn't a lot of foot traffic through this museum, and so a lot of my time was spent uh, planning events. And one year, my big event for the summer was a circus-themed murder mystery. Yeah. So naturally, as I was planning things out, cotton candy was going to be a key piece of this event. Okay, the, the cotton candy was going to bring all of the delight and the wonder. In my vision, the cotton candy was really the glue that hold the whole, held the whole thing together. Okay, but the problem was we didn't have a cotton candy machine and we didn't have a budget to rent a cotton candy machine. And so I searched high and low and eventually I tracked down one of those little household use cotton candy machines on Kijiji. And if you're, if you're under the age of, I don't know, like 30, uh, Kijiji, you know what Kijiji is? Kijiji is kind of like, like the Facebook mar market, uh, marketplace that your ancestors used uh, in times before you. Um, so just think of that kind of thing. So I tracked down this cotton candy machine. I was so excited to have found a way to bring my vision to life. And I got all of my supplies out the night before the event, and I got this little thing fired up and going. And I don't know if any of you have ever used like a household cotton candy machine, but one of the things that became very apparent very quickly is that they don't work fast. In fact, they work slow. They work very, very slow. They work so much slower than I had anticipated. And it became really clear that if I wanted cotton candy for this event, I was going to have to stay up all night. And I did. I stayed up toiling over this cotton candy machine until about 4 a.m. when I finally decided that I had enough and my kitchen was filled with puffy pink clouds on sticks all lined up beside each other in every cup that I owned. And then I went to bed for a few hours, and this is what I woke up to. My counters were lined with paper sticks covered in melted pink sugar. The cotton candy that I had such big dreams for, that I'd worked so hard for, that I'd sacrificed so much for, had literally dissolved into nothing. <laughs> Says the naturopathic doctor. <laughs> 
Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever found yourself in one of those situations where you poured out your blood and sweat and tears, where you sacrificed your time and your energy, maybe even like your relationships and your well-being for something, and then you came to discover that it wasn't what you imagined it to be, that it didn't last, or it wasn't enough, or it didn't satisfy like you thought it was going to? From time to time, we all find ourselves in situations where it's obvious that we've kind of given ourselves uh, to things that just weren't worth it. And Jesus says that this is actually something that we're at risk of, not just when it comes to cotton candy, but also when it comes to our lives. Because there are all kinds of things in our world that are competing for our attention and our affection. And if we're not careful, we can spend our whole lives chasing after things that don't last, or don't matter, or that don't really satisfy. This morning, we are going to be looking at a spiritual discipline that can help us to keep our lives focused on what matters the most. We've been working through a series on the ancient practices of faith, on the spiritual disciplines that for generations, followers of Jesus have been practicing to open up their hearts and their minds and their lives to the presence of God. And if you've been at Evergreen for a while, you know that spiritual practice, practices are something that we really value. Right? This is why we practiced Lectio just this morning. Because we've come to recognize the risk that we all face in our consumeristic culture of coming to church and just kind of sitting back as spectators and taking it all in and never really opening ourselves up to God's presence and transformation. And we don't want to do that. We want this to be a place where we gather together and where we engage and where we connect with God so that we can experience his presence and his change in our lives. And in this series, we're spending some time focusing on the specific spiritual disciplines so that together we can explore new ways of connecting with God and we can go deeper in familiar ways of connecting with God, all so that our lives can be more fully attuned to his presence and so that we can be more awake to the ways that he's moving within us and around us. So, so far we've talked about meditation and prayer. We've talked about fasting and the practice of study. And this morning, we are going to be talking about the practice of simplicity. Now, I'm going to be entirely honest with you, okay? About 10 years ago, my friend gave me a gift. It was a book. And this book was called The Freedom of Simplicity by Richard Foster, who's a well-known author and speaker who talks a lot about spiritual practices. It's called The Freedom of Simplicity. And when I opened up this gift and I read the title, I thought, oh no. I was so disappointed to have received what I imagined to be the worst gift I could have possibly received because I know how conviction works. I knew that if I read that book, 
I was going to be forced to deal with the fact that I have too much stuff that I'm too attached to. And here's the thing. I love stuff. I love new stuff. I love shiny stuff. I love stuff with buttons. I love stuff with wheels. I love all kinds of stuff. And we live in a culture, all of us do, that trains us to be people who love stuff. Every single day, every single one of us is exposed to thousands of advertisements that are designed to manipulate our brains into believing that we need more stuff. And it's working. Here are some statistics to paint a little bit of a picture of where we're at in terms of consumerism. And these numbers come from the United States, and so we're probably a little bit off in Canada, but that will, this will just give us a little bit of an idea. So we consume twice as much material goods as we did just 50 years ago. The average size of a home has tripled in that same span of time. And even with all of that extra space, 25% of people with two car garages don't have room to park either car inside of their garage. Some of you are feeling that, right? And 32% of people only have room to park one car. And on top of that, there is 7.3 square feet of rental storage per capita. We have so much stuff that we don't know where to put it all. We are constantly trying to keep up with new advances in technology, right? I mean, we get a new phone and within a couple of years, it's obsolete. We buy a new car and before long, it feels lame and outdated. We're constantly worrying that our houses aren't big enough and that our clothes are too old. We live in a culture where bigger is better where we're used to having all of our wants and our needs immediately gratified, hello one day shipping, where we are surrounded by distractions and where busyness as see, is seen as a status symbol. We have cluttered homes, we have cluttered schedules, and we have cluttered minds. We are constantly in the pursuit of more. But research has now proven again and again what we all know deep down to be true, which is that having more doesn't actually make us any happier. And the constant pursuit of more fills us with stress and anxiety. It leaves us feeling exhausted and burnt out. And it robs us of peace and contentment. The practice of simplicity clears the clutter out of our lives to make more space for what really matters. It pulls us off of the treadmill of our consumeristic culture so that we can enter into the way of life that Jesus invites us into, what he describes in John 10 verse 10 as life to the full. In his book, The Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster starts off his chapter on simplicity with these three words that are powerful and true. He says, 
Simplicity is freedom. Simplicity is freedom. So what exactly is the spiritual practice of simplicity? Let's start off by talking about what simplicity is not. First of all, uh, simplicity is not asceticism. Asceticism is a way of living that renounces pleasure as a way of pursuing spiritual enlightenment, right? And so often it will have to do with giving up material possessions. But simplicity isn't about renouncing possessions. It's not about saying that possessions are bad. It's about putting our possessions into perspective. In the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul says, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. So simplicity is about receiving what we have as a gift from God and holding on to it with open hands and with a willingness to give it away if we're called to. Simplicity isn't, sorry, simplicity is about being able to own stuff without letting our stuff own us. Okay, it's about owning stuff without letting our stuff own us. So it's not asceticism, and it's also not a cultural trend. And there are some movements in our culture that are encouraging people to get rid of their stuff and to live with less. I'm sure some of you have heard of them, right? Like some, uh, there's a, the minimalists, for example, are a couple of guys who write and speak and travel around, and they talk about the value of living with less. Marie Kondo uh, has a following of people. Uh, I'm sure some of you are familiar with it, right? And she uh, trains people to clear out everything that doesn't what? Spark joy. You know it. And the fact that this, these movements exist, it really is quite a profound statement to where we're at as a culture. There's this widespread rec- recognition right, that our addictions to stuff has become a problem. But the spiritual practice of simplicity isn't a fad or a trend, and it's not about making a bunch of external changes to enhance our quality of life or to live with a greater degree of intentionality, although it does do that. For followers of Jesus, simplicity starts with an internal change. It's about keeping Jesus at the center of who we are and what we do And it's about letting him change the way we live. And simplicity isn't a practice that only applies to people who have a lot of material resources. Sometimes we're really quick to give ourselves a pass on spiritual disciplines that have to do with finances because compared to those other rich people, we're broke. (laughs) But on a global scale, Even those of us who feel broke in our culture are really quite wealthy. And regardless of how much or how little we have, we're all prone to putting too much importance on material goods. Simplicity is really an orientation of the heart. 
And so it's a, pra- it's a practice that's relevant and important for all of us, regardless of how much or how little we have. So let's look at a few definitions. Richard Foster defines simplicity as an inward reality of single-hearted focus upon God and his kingdom, which results in an outward lifestyle of modesty, openness, and unpretentiousness, and which disciplines our hunger for status, glamour, and luxury. John Mark Comer, who is another well-known author and uh, pastor, defines it as limiting our number of possessions, expenses, activities, and social obligations to a level where we're free to live joyfully in the kingdom of Jesus. And Jan Johnson, who is an author and spiritual director, says, we practice simplicity when we intentionally arrange our life around God, around what he's doing in us and in the world, and let the rest drop off. At its core, simplicity is about living a life that's centered in Christ. And there's an inward component to simplicity and an outward component to simplicity. Inner simplicity means getting rid of the voices that clutter our hearts and our minds and fill us with anxiety and fear and pull us away from Jesus. And letting Jesus' voice be the one that tells us who we are and how we should live. Foster refers to this as living out of the divine center. And outward simplicity means cutting back on our expenses, on our stuff, on our commitments, on our obligations, so that we are free to be present to God and others and to give generously and to focus on what really matters. Now, Scripture talks a lot about money. It talks a lot about what we do with our money. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's people are called again and again to live generously and to care for the poor and to protect themselves against the dangers of greed. Jesus spoke about economics more than any other social issue. And I mean, think about it. Think about the world that Jesus lived in. Jesus lived in a culture where there was a small percentage of the population that were just filthy rich. There wasn't much of a middle class. And about 90% of the people there lived in relative poverty. So most of the people that Jesus was speaking to didn't have a lot of money to work with. But still, this was something that he focused on a lot. Not because Jesus doesn't want his followers to enjoy nice things, but because he knew that left unchecked, our love for money would enslave us and destroy our souls and tear apart our relationships and our communities. And the life that Jesus has in mind for us is so much better and real and more fulfilling than that. This morning, we're going to look at a passage from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus calls his followers to a life of simplicity, and he paints a picture of what it looks like to trust God as the one who provides for all of our needs. And so let's have a look. 
Uh, This is a passage from the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to find it in Matthew 6, verses 19 to 34. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Matthew 6, verses 19 to 34. We'll start with verse 19. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your hearts will be also. So Jesus draws a contrast between two different ways of living our lives. We can either store up treasures here on earth by accumulating wealth and possessions and status things that don't really matter and definitely won't last. Or we can store up treasure in heaven. And remember, this is important. When scripture talks about heaven, it's not just talking about a place where we go after we die. Okay, it's talking about that, but it's bigger than that. It's more than that. In scripture, heaven exists in the here and now wherever God is on the move. And it extends into eternity. So to store up treasure in heaven is to value the things that God values. To treasure the people that God treasures. And to value the ways that he's working in the here and the now that will last for all of eternity. So each one of us has a choice about what we're going to give our lives to, right? And when we zoom out and we look at our lives through the lens of eternity, it puts things into perspective. One way to think about this is when you get to the end of your life, other than your stuff, what will you leave behind? What do you want to leave behind? When you get to the end of your life, other than your stuff, what will you leave behind? behind because your stuff isn't going to last but the impact you have on people the ways you've extended God's love and hope and pointed uh, people towards Jesus that will last for all of eternity verse 22 it says your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body when your eye is healthy your whole body is filled with lights But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. Now this passage is a little bit confusing for us today because Jesus draws on an image that was familiar to his listeners, but that isn't as familiar to us. In Jesus' time, they talked about having a good eye or a healthy eye as looking at others with a spirit of generosity. Really as as seeing things the way God sees them, looking at the world through God's eyes. To have an evil eye or an unhealthy eye meant to be stingy or jealous. It meant to walk around with eyes that are constantly on the lookout for what we want and for what we need to do in order to get our way. And so Jesus makes a contrast between two different ways of seeing, two different ways of looking at the world. 
We can have eyes that are focused on our own wants and needs, or we can have eyes that are on the lookout for ways that we can reflect God's love and generosity to others. Verse 24 says this, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. So notice here, Jesus doesn't say that you shouldn't serve two masters. He says that you can't. You can't uh, serve two masters. He says it's not possible. You will ultimately end up bowing down to one or the other. You can't serve God and money at the same time. It just doesn't work. Verse 25. That's why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you more valuable to him than they are? Take a minute to just let that sink in. Aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? So Jesus here tells us why we should give God all of our attention and affection and stop chasing after material gain. Because we have a God that we can trust. We have a heavenly father who's taking care of us. And we can see his, his provision all around us, his faithfulness all around us in nature. And so Jesus says we don't need to worry. And he points out that worrying doesn't help us anyways, right? We all know that to be true. Worrying doesn't help us. It can't add a single minute to our lives. And science actually now tells us that living with a constant sense of anxiety shortens our lives, right? It can make us really sick. Jesus calls his followers to be people who rest in the provision of the God who loves them. Verse 28, and why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So again, Jesus points to nature. Flowers don't stress. Flowers don't worry about whether or not their outfits are in fashion. Their beauty is given to them by God. And Jesus says, if God cares that much for flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow, how much more does he care for you? Again, you have a heavenly father that you can trust. Verse 31. So don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly father already knows all your needs. 
Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So let's pause there. This is important. Jesus gives his followers the secret to living lives of simplicity, to living lives of peace and contentment and faithfulness and joy. He says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. We get ourselves so tangled up in knots, scrambling around trying to get everything that we need and want, everything that we think will make us happy and fulfilled. But Jesus makes things really simple for us, doesn't he? He says, seek God's kingdom first, and everything else will fall into place. Keep your eyes open for the ways that God is on the move and join him in doing the good work that he's doing in the world and you will be taken care of by your heavenly father. And then verse 34 says, so don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. When we trust God, we're free to live in the moment. We're free to be present to the people and the situations that we find ourselves in. And to rest in the knowledge that God will be there to help us face whatever tomorrow brings. So Jesus paints a picture of two different ways of living our lives. One way of living that's focused on ourselves, where we're constantly trying to accumulate more and get ahead. A life that's full of anxiety and exhaustion and that ultimately gets wasted on things that don't last. And another way of living that sees the world through God's eyes and puts the kingdom first and trusts in God's goodness and faithfulness to provide for our needs. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that if I were to ask you which of those two ways of living, you would choose option B. Am I right? But in practice, we all know that this is way more difficult to live out in real life because our hearts get pulled in all kinds of different directions, we get lured in by Facebook ads that have been listening to our conversations and know what kind of shoes we want to buy before we even do. We see other people's houses and cars and we feel like we're not keeping up, like we're missing out. So how do we actually live out this practice of simplicity? How do we become people who put God's kingdom first and let everything else fall into place? We could talk about all kinds of practical ways to clear out clutter and to live more simply. It could mean going through our homes one room at a time and throwing out or donating the things that we don't need. It could, go, it could mean going for a period of time without any uh, excess spending or adjusting our budget so that we're giving away more money um, and, and spending less on ourselves. It could mean looking at our schedules and cutting out a couple of the commitments that aren't as important to us. 
It could mean doing a, a social media fast and cutting out some of the noise and distractions in our mind. And later today, I'll, I'll send out an email, I'll send out a resource with some ideas for practicing simplicity, even just to experiment with for short periods of time. But in reality, this will look different for each one of us in practice. And so instead, we're going to go a little bit deeper and talk about three ways that Jesus calls us to change our posture and our way of thinking in order to be people who live in the freedom of simplicity. And these come from Richard Foster. Uh, he calls them the three attitudes of simplicity. And the first one's this. Jesus calls us to see everything we have as a gift from God. He calls us to see everything we have as a gift from God. When we recognize that everything we have is a gift, not only does it help us to live with more gratitude, but it frees us from the anxiety of feeling like we constantly need to get more. Because we know that we're being cared for by the God who created the universe and who has the infinite resources of heaven at his fingertips. The second attitude of simplicity is recognizing that everything we have is cared for by God. Everything we have is cared for by God, whether it is our stuff or our jobs or our reputations. We don't need to anxiously cling to what we have. We can trust that God will protect us and that he'll provide for us as we navigate the ups and downs of our day-to-day -day lives. And the third attitude of simplicity is living as though everything we have is available to others when it's good and right. In other words, when God calls us to give. When we recognize that everything we have is a gift from God and that God cares for everything we have, it frees us up to be people who live with open hands, who live generously, who help others when they're in need because we trust that God will continue to provide for us in the future as he has in the past. And we know that God calls us to be people who are generous with others in the way that he has been generous with us. And because we know that what we have doesn't really belong to us anyways. God's entrusted it to our care, and one of the most exciting things that we can do with our resources is to use them to extend God's love and care to others. So everything we have, we receive as a gift. Everything we have is cared for by God, and everything we have is available to others when it's right and good. These are the three attitudes that will characterize our lives when we're putting the kingdom of God above everything else, and when we're trusting God to provide for our needs. And this is the inner disposition that's the foundation for practicing simplicity when it comes to our finances and our stuff and our schedules. G.K. Chesterton once said, it's a very difficult name to say, G.K. Chesterton once said, there are two ways to get enough. 
One is to continue to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. I'm going to say that one more time. There are two ways to get enough. One is to continue to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. And I think he was almost right. He's so close. There are two ways to get enough. We can accumulate more and more stuff and status and just keep hoping that one day we'll get there, that one day after we purchase the next thing or get that next upgrade, we'll finally feel satisfied. Or we can desire not less, but differently. We can desire more of what really matters. We can desire more time to connect with the people that God's placed in our lives. We can desire more purpose. We can desire more gratitude, more joy, more peace, more freedom, more generosity, more love. We can desire more of God and his kingdom in our lives and in the world. And here's the thing. God has already given us all of himself. Jesus poured out his entire life for us. He died and he rose from the dead so that our relationship with God could be restored. He sent his spirit to fill us and lead us so that we can live every single day in light of his presence. All of the fullness of God is already available to us. We just need to make more room in our lives to be present to him. Danielle Strickland says it this way. She says, it's not that we need more of God. It's that God needs more of us. The practice of simplicity is about clearing out the clutter in our hearts and minds and lives so that we can live from that divine center of God's presence and have eyes that are open to the ways that he is moving within us and all around us. It's about treasuring God's kingdom above all else and trusting that God will provide us with everything we really need and living in the joy and the peace that come from resting in his love. Does that sound good? It sounds good. Would you pray with me? I'll invite the worship team to come on up to the front. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for all of the gifts that you have poured into our lives, even though sometimes we are too distracted to notice them. And God, I pray that you would help each one of us to be people who live with eyes that are open to see the ways that you're working in our lives and all around us. Help us to be people who are generous, who live with open hands. God, free us from the slavery we sometimes experience to our stuff, to money. And God, may we just rest in you. Help us to be people who live in the simplicity of putting your kingdom first and letting everything else fall into place. In your name we pray. Amen.